On the show today, I have Eric, and he's here to talk to us about WildFit and other things. Hi, and welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So what is WildFit, and why did you get inspired uh, to build the uh, WildFit uh, program? You know, uh, in my uh, very early 20s, at 21, I was dealing with a bunch of health problems, and I had obviously sought out a variety of medical advice, which really hadn't done anything for me. I And... and uh, some friends of mine sat me down and kind of started talking to me a little bit about food, and I made some changes, and 30 days later, I was down 35 pounds, and every symptom I had was gone, and I, I just became curious, like curious how I could spend almost a decade visiting doctors, getting pills and inhalants and injections, and now even surgery they wanted me to have, and all of a sudden, all I had to do was change my food, and so much of that could be rectified. And um, so for the next sort of 20 years, I, I it was just a ongoing research hobby of mine for a long time. And then about five years ago, uh, some of my, you know, I, I teach entrepreneurship through businessfreedom.com and, and other places. And, and a lot of our clients would be asking me where I get all my energy from and why, you know, why, why do I have all this energy? I'm not 23 and I bounce around the stage and, you know, I can do 10, 15 hours a day on stage. What's happening? And so I started talk, sharing with them some of the things that I'd learned about, um, about nutrition and about human history and evolution. And, uh, and that just sort of turned into a thing. You know, they started asking for coaching. I designed a, a, a 90 day program and we got you know, the first eight clients, all eight of them got phenomenal response, you know, phenomenal results, which is an unlikely statistic. So we did it again and it did it happen again. And then word of mouth just caught on at that point. And, uh, um, I think what we did is we arrived at a very powerful and effective combination of nutritional anthropology and behavioral change psychology. And by doing that, and adding to that um, a level of engagement in terms of a level of engaging content in, in terms of the way that we deliver the programs, we created a program that has an unbelievable completion rate um, and then has a really phenomenal success rate and then has a really phenomenal stick rate beyond that. And, and, and when you do that, I guess you can't help but have word of mouth come in, uh, you know, next thing you know, we've got clients in 130 countries. And why do you think people are addicted to food? Why do you think addiction to food in America is so prevalent? Well, you know, I, I think addictions are fascinating, um, you know, whether they be physical or psychological. And I think the toughest addictions of all are the ones that are related to actual needs. You know, so if somebody's addicted to cocaine, they can like stop that. But if somebody's addicted to sex, I don't know, you know, stop that. I, I don't know how, that, how I would feel about that or, or stop eating food. So the tough part is when you have an addiction that is kind of related to something you need to do to just survive, that makes that addiction all the tougher. But really, the real reason that I think that we have whatever we call them, let's call it food dysfunction rather than maybe addiction, because there's definitely addiction, but there's there's dysfunction beyond just addiction. I, I believe the biggest cause of that is that um, we that, that nutritionally we fall into something called the evolution gap. And the evolution gap is the um, is the gap between our sociological and civilization, you know, the, the pace of change in civilization and technology. Uh, versus our pace of change from a genetic perspective. While our epigenetics can respond in a day or in a generation or what have you, our hardcore genetics are, you know, generation to generation. And so they that takes an incredibly long time. And so starting whatever, 20, 30,000 years ago, you can even see in the fossil record where we start already experiencing bone disease and an increase in dental cavities and all that kind of stuff. And that gap has opened to the point where our ancestors lived in an environment that had literally you know, scarce calories per acre, hundreds of calories per acre to a place where we now live with a, a billion calories per acre, uh, you know, at the other end of a, an app. And so it's, 
I think that our dysfunctions come from the fact that we evolved to survive starvation in a, in a natural environment wherein food was seasonal and rare. And now we live in a world where food is not the least bit seasonal and anything but rare. But our instincts haven't caught up to that. What do you think about the keto diet? Do you think it's a good thing, bad thing, a fad, maybe not healthy for the human body? Well, I think it's, you know, look, any, any diet that's achieved any like kind of fad type success is onto something, right? It's onto something. So then we have to look at what it's onto. Keto is not a diet, it's a season. It, it is a season. And I, I, I've been saying this from the beginning. In fact, we didn't even use the word keto in our programs because we didn't wanna get into that. Like we, we called it spring. It's a season and anybody worth their salt speaking in the area of, of keto these days will tell you that it is a season. It, it, it's a it's a time period that you go through, but it's not a lifestyle. It's no more a lifestyle than eating carbs all the time is a lifestyle. And and the issue we have to remember about the human body is that it evolved to thrive and survive through seasonal fluctuation, seasonal availability of food, seasonal changes to behavior. Uh, for example, the pancreas is, is a minimally a dual function organ. It produces glucagon and it produces insulin, but it doesn't do both jobs at the same time. Doesn't that just suggest to us that maybe it wants to do both jobs? But somebody who's eating carbs all the time is only letting it produce insulin and never letting it do its second job. Somebody who's keto all the time is doing the exact opposite. So yes, I think keto is an incredibly valuable and powerful tool as a season. Okay, and how can, how can we emulate seasonality with the current food supply that's so readily available to us? Well, you know, I think one of the things we have to do is we, we, we truly have to recognize that um, being fed by the food production system without consciousness is unbelievably dangerous and one of the most costly things that society does. So what I'm really saying is, is that it's time for people to take a personal interest in their own nutritional education, right? The, it, we, if you think about it, we're supposed to be the smartest species on earth. Okay, fair enough. But why do we suffer with more pain and disease than any other animal on earth? With, of course, the exception being our pets, our livestock, our zoo animals. I mean, they suffer pretty heavily too. But guess why? Because we feed them through our food production system. So I think what we need to do is get really, truly conscious about what our needs are. I'll give you one example that I think is incredibly important. Our health is far more determined, far more dependent upon getting enough of the good stuff than it is eliminating the bad stuff. Now, I'm not saying the bad stuff you know, isn't bad, I'm just saying you can take somebody and put them on a perfect diet and remove all the bad stuff so they're eating only good stuff, right? It's all good, except for one problem. Let's say we remove all the vitamin C. So they've never eaten any garbage, they've never had refined sugar, God forbid they've ever had dairy products or gluten, they've never had anything quote unquote bad, but and they've eaten everything that's good, but we've removed the vitamin C from their food. They will get skin eruptions, and then they will get scurvy, and then they will die, having never eaten a chocolate bar. So what I think we need to start doing is shifting away from the, avoid these seven dangerous foods to fit into that bikini for your whatever. Great clickbait, awesome. But what we really need to be doing is saying, hey, food is comprised really of two things, energy and non-energy nutrients. And we need both of them and we need the right ones. And that's what we should be focusing on. And I know you spent uh, lots of time with the Bushmen in Africa. And uh, my question to you about them, curious, is did they ever fast intentionally or unintentionally? 
Well, unintentionally, for sure. I mean, not intentionally. Think about that. They live in an environment which is like near food is incredibly rare and requires a significant amount of effort to get. Like, it's like, you know, there's no fridge. Yeah, they don't have Uber Eats, right? Like they're, they, they, they have to walk a minimum of 10 kilometers, 10 miles even a day, a minimum, just to satisfy their most basic hydration and nutrition needs. It's just the way it is. So they would never knowingly, intentionally fast. Oh, look, I'll walk past those available calories and nutrients, and then maybe I'll die next week, right? So, but what happens in their world is that seasonal fluctuation causes moments in time when food is incredibly scarce. And so it causes them to focus, it causes them at times to fast and, and, and to intermittent fast. And so, you know, what they don't, they don't um, plan to intermittent fast, but life just is set up that way for them sometimes. And our, the reason that intermittent fasting can work for us is that our bodies evolved the A, ability to cope without food at times, and B, the opportunism to take advantage of no food at times to do repair work. And so, you know, they, they, they don't intentionally do it, but of course, nature forces it upon them from time to time. Okay. And why do you think a manufacturer, food manufacturers remove nutrients from food and add sugar? Is there like a business model for that or why, why well, do you think they do that? You know, it's an interesting thought exercise. Imagine, you know, you and I are executives at a food company. We're like, uh, we've tapped out. We can't seem to improve sales anymore. Everybody's eating what they can. Uh, we seem to have got our full set of market share. How could we increase profits at this point? Well, marketing 101 is get people to buy again, get them to buy more. Yeah, but they're full. Okay, how can we make them feel less full? Well, we could put less nutrition in the food. It would also bring our costs down on the bottom line, by the way. Hey, what if we put some addictive substances in there? Oh, and how about we slam them with sugar so that they have an insulin rush that crazes, causes a sugar craving, and that'll make them hungry again. Now, I'm not saying that conversation took place, but if you look around, it looks like it might have. And what can people do to, to stop that or change that in the future? You know, um, I want to offer a, a definition of what I would call superconscious. When you think that you've got your conscious mind and then you've got your instincts and your body and, and a huge amount of our day, the vast majority of our day is our body simply doing what it knows to do and running patterns. Even just, you know, we, we just run automatic behaviors all the time. So if we spend 5% of the day in full conscious mode, that's probably a lot you know, for most people. And so what I want to suggest is that superconscious is when you have trained your unconscious, your body, to live in accordance with the way your conscious mind would like you to live, then you're really onto something, right? The trouble for most of us is, is that to train our subconscious, we have to compete with Coca-Cola and McDonald's and Nestle and, and all these other com companies that are profit-driven companies. We have to compete with them and we have to compete with the budgets they have to hire the very best psychologists and the very best hypnotherapists and the very best everybody they can find that can make sure that they can write to the subconscious mind more powerfully. Look. You probably know the nativity story. You know, there was, there was Mary and Joseph and then, and there was no sex, of course. And then there was Jesus and then now there's Jesus and then there's the wise men and the wise men brought frankincense, myrrh and gold. I don't remember anything about candy canes, chocolate, turkey, pumpkin pie. I don't, what, what happened? Like how, how did things become attached to a particular date? Somebody marketed it there. If we go further into that story, you know, Jesus is there on the cross. There's wine. There's, you know, forgiveness. There's dying for sins. There's all that stuff. There's no chocolate. There, there's no, no, nobody walked out. Hey, Jesus, would you like some chocolate right now? How did chocolate get added? Chocolate got added because food manufacturers want to reduce your decision capacity. So if they can create rules that supersede your internal, your internal, uh, 
your internal consciousness, then you'll simply go, oh, I don't usually eat chocolate, but it's Easter. And so what we have to do is bring super consciousness to that. We have to notice when they're doing that to us and change that. Because if we try to do it on willpower alone, look, willpower works, but it's a short-term thing. It's like, it's, like, um, it's like calf muscles. You can only do so many calf raises before suddenly they go, no, no more. Willpower is like that. You're working it, you're using it, you're pushing it, and then willpower goes, ah, and the next thing you know, you're scarfing down food that you wish you weren't eating. Correct. Yeah, it's almost like they're biohacking our bodies for profit. That's right. What do you think about cannabis usage daily? Do you think it's a long-term a, a good idea or a bad idea? <laughs> That's a, out of left field. Well, you know, um, let's talk about cannabis usage generally. Um, I, I, um, I take this view. Uh, um, cannabis is an old world plant and humans have had a very long relationship with the cannabis plant, whereas tobacco is a new world plant and humans are very new to tobacco and it's no wonder that tobacco is so unbelievably impactful to us in a negative way. Cannabis, on the other hand, has been involved in human history for a very long time, probably burning, eating, using for rope, and a bunch, you know, it's been around a long time. And I, I might even argue that we uh, may have become nutritionally dependent upon the cannabis plant because it seems like we may underproduce cannabinoids that fight cancer, and that plant is full of them. And you know, so it may well be that there's even a nutritional dependency there. But when we start talking about THC, and we start talking about, say, the recreational, or let's call it the side effects, the psychological, psychoactive aspects of the plant, that's a different issue. And my view of that is, is that it really comes down to why. So when somebody is using cannabis, like, say, for the psychoactive aspects of it, and they're using it daily, that would be an alarm bell to me, because anything that you do daily would be an alarm bell to me. I would just be cautious. Anybody who drinks coffee every single day, I'm going, hold on a second, are you using coffee, or is coffee using you? And so what I would say is we wanted to look into the why. So if somebody's smoking cannabis to hide from things, if they're smoking cannabis to distract themselves, if they're smoking cannabis to numb themselves in some way, then I don't think it's a good idea at all. Um, if they're smoking cannabis uh, uh, you know, in a, in a, for, for the occasional recreational thing, frankly, as far as I can tell, cannabis does less damage to society than alcohol does, so I don't have an issue with that. Okay, and now moving to a different a subject here, public speaking. What is the charisma pattern and why is that so important uh, in storytelling? The charisma pattern, um, I'm not sure where the name actually came from. I picked it up somewhere. It's not, not my own invention. But the charisma pattern, um, to really understand it, what we have to understand is the value of um, uh, vocal fluctuation and speed and tonality and that sort of stuff in the way people speak when they're on stage. So it, what's really funny is if you take the average adult and ask them to speak to a room full of adults, they'll kind of talk like, I'm here to present these details to you right now and you know whatever. But if you ask that same adult to present to a bunch of kids, they'll go, hey, good morning, kids. And they, they add on this, fluctu this, this uh, voice fluctuation. And this is incredibly important because in any given audience, there are some people who prefer a more visual message, a louder, faster, more descriptive message. And there are some people who perform a more steady cadence, a more auditory sound-based message. And there are other people who really like to process through feelings. So they don't want a lot of sound. They don't want a lot of sound intrusion. They want to speak through feelings. So any speaker who walks out in front of an audience and tries to pick one tonality is immediately breaking rapport with the other two-thirds of the audience, roughly speaking. So it's, it's almost like a full-spectrum way of touching on different types of people's sensibilities. Exactly. And the charisma pattern talks about how best to launch a talk. Because while you should use potentially all three of those tonalities, it vary all three of those kind of um, ways of speaking in any given talk, 
the, the, the questions first, you know, comes along, well, wait a minute, how do you begin the talk? And what I would suggest to you, and, and, and the way the charisma pattern works is that you begin softly with, with a more kinesthetic or feeling-based communication, which could last very a very short period of time. It could be seconds or even a few minutes, and then move to a more auditory tone, and then punch in with some sort of visual delivery, and then after that, design a, a tonality roller coaster that matches the content and the audience. That charisma pattern will create that engagement early on. And of course, if you go and watch any, you know, look, look, Martin Luther King Jr. did not stand there above the above those, you know, in, the, in, in Washington, he didn't stand there and start his speech with, I have a dream today. He didn't start there, <laughs> right? He, you know, we may see that in the video, but, but he started talking as he always did and, and, you know, slowly and methodically and then built it up and built it up and built it up and then he had a dream. And so that pattern is incredibly friendly to the human hearing system because every, anybody from one of those three groups kind of enjoys it. Think of it this way, if you reversed it and you started with the shouting, if you started with the loud volume, you would immediately turn off the two other groups to the point that they might leave. Whereas if you start softly, yeah, the visual people who are interested in loud and punch, they may not hear you, but they won't be offended. And so that way you can kind of pace and lead them into your content. Okay. And what, what is your advice to someone who's starting to do public speaking? What's that one piece of information that you would give a person who's just about to get on the stage, who's never done it before? Wow, I don't have one. I mean, there's just not one. I wish there was one, but there isn't. There's just, but let me give you some okay. real quickly. One, YouTube. Like YouTube, I didn't have that when I started. Can you imagine how much I would have valued that? When I wanted to watch talks of people to model them, I had to go to a library. You know, like now a kid can, I mean, look, tune away from the Cardassians for a minute, you know, let go of the fuzzy kittens and go and look at some of the greatest speeches ever delivered and watch them and watch them and watch them and learn. It's like this unbelievable free education. You can watch old videos of, of, of John F. Kennedy all the way up to, you could watch Tony Robbins today if you wanted to. There's just a variety of ways to learn. That's thing number one. Thing number two, practice, practice, practice. The more practice you get, the more proficient you become, the more easily the words will flow from you and the more confidence you will feel. And uh, so we'll leave it at two for now. Okay, great. Uh, and do you think neurolinguistic programming is also part of that that could help someone with public speaking? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the fact is whether, whether somebody learns neurolinguistic programming or not, they're probably practicing certain aspects of it. It's one of those things, um, you, know, I, you know, for anybody who isn't familiar with NLP, it's, it's basically a synthesis of therapeutic techniques designed to create a solution faster um, than, you know, say, any one modality might. And it's, it can be incredibly useful in peak performance, like, you know, teaching people how to get into a peak state before they go on stage or before they go and play a sport or what have you. And so there are definitely components of NLP that I think can be incredibly useful to a presenter on stage, both in terms of preparing themselves for really good delivery and in terms of how they might deliver and the language patterns they might choose in delivery. Okay. Eric, are there any other uh, things you want to talk about that I might have not touched on? No, I, you know, I think, well, how about this? You know, it's, 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 it's 2020 and uh, that shocks me because I can, st I still have vivid memories of 20 years ago, people going in 2020, everything's going to yeah. be like this. And, you know, and here we are, it's 2020 and some of those things are true and many of those things are not, but here's what I do know. I stand by something that I wrote a long, long time ago. And that is that the only real way to measure success in life is the number of days that you're truly happy. And I think that's true in the year 2000. I think that's true in the year, you know, 2020. And so I, I want to offer this idea. People often set grand resolutions 
and um, you know they 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 decide they're going to make all these massive changes, and then then January first comes along and they're not you know they, they have a hard time breaking into those changes and or 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 maintaining them. And here we are, you know, uh, moving our way into the year. And what I want to suggest to people, and by the way, I know people listen to podcasts at any point in time of the year. So this message right now I want to offer you is valuable. I don't care if it's December, January, February, March. It doesn't matter. Here's the message. It is not the major decisions that you make in one moment that makes so much of a, an impact on your life as it is the course corrections you make on a daily basis. And, and that's really the thing for people to check in on is, hey, I may have set a resolution. I may have wanted to change, but am I really going to wait till next year to get things right? And so the, my big message is the more regularly you can correct course the shorter the path will be to the to the destiny you're trying to work towards. That's that's a great message. It's it's very motivating. And where can people find more information about you and your work? Sure. I'm at uh, www.eric.ee. I'm on Facebook at my name, Eric Edmeads, and I'm most active. Like I'm, I personally manage my own Instagram at Eric Edmeads, and uh, I, I, that, that's me personally responding to people. Okay, Eric, thank you for joining us on the show today. Sure. Thanks for having me.